this is uh, definitely, I think, the coolest one that we've done, but it's just like, it's like a lot. It's a ton. Yeah, we're just we're just gonna marathon through this. And this is, I love this. This is actually, I think, the most conversational one that we've had. I agree. Hey, welcome back to the Remind Podcast. My name is Kyle, and my buddy Zach and I are in the midst of a conversation around the Azusa Street Revival, which took place in 1906 through 1909 in Los Angeles. This week, we're talking about revival in general, the Azusa Street Mission's leadership and its global reach. So I'm excited for you to take a listen in. Enjoy. Obviously a big piece of our culture at Regen is this up in and out lifestyle of Jesus, up with the Father, in with each other, out. Uh, with the least, the last, and the last. I thought it would be good to look at the Azusa Street mission, the Azusa Street revival through those three lenses. If you think about the inward dynamic of how the spiritual family worked, I mean, we've already talked about how it was multi-ethnic, how it was interracial, how it was intergenerational, how men and women led together. And, and that was really healthy, but it was also really healthy because William Seymour was a tremendously gifted leader. Um, I mean, he's the son of illiterate slaves, kind of all of the sudden, I mean, he had some formal training in ministry under Charles Parham, but all of a sudden he's leading this global movement. And in letters that describe him, he's just not the kind of leader that we would think of being in charge of these things. I mean, when we think of stuff that's big and massive, we do not think of words that people use to describe William Seymour, words like humble, quiet soft-spoken, gentle, unassuming. Like we do not think of that. We think of big blustery CEO types. In fact, those are the kind of pastors in America that lead big churches are those big, not the quiet, soft-spoken, gentle, and unassuming. I mean, in those gatherings, it was really interesting. The pulpit was like crates just stacked on top of each other, nothing fancy. And he would have his head tucked in the crate, kneeling in prayer, have his head tucked in in the crate while things were going on. And then he would get up to preach. I mean, he was not confrontational. He did not thrive in conflict, which is again, how a lot of charismatic holiness leaders were at the time that they tended to thrive on those things. Instead, he was humble. He was gracious. He developed consensus. He built teams. He knew where to draw a line. Like there were a couple times where theologically they got off a little bit. So there was kind of some experimentation with not only speaking and singing in tongues, but writing in tongues and Seymour like cut up put an end to that pretty quickly. So he knew how to draw a line, but what's so unique about him, and this is something we kind of talk about at Regen sometimes, is spiritual capital, that he led with spiritual authority and spiritual capital, not knowledge authority, not positional authority, not experience authority, not financial authority. He led with spiritual capital. He, uh, and one, one person I've been listening to recently described spiritual authority as the smell of Jesus on you. And I think people loved to follow William Seymour because he smelled like Jesus. I mean, this dude was praying all the time and he was strategic. I mean, he knew how to bring, he brought other pastors in LA together to kind of spread this revival. He worked with other like-minded people. But that kind of leadership, that humble, quiet, soft-spoken, that gentle, unassuming leadership, I mean, he uh, was, was just so fruitful for that spiritual family to kind of grow. 
to me, um, to use some language that not all of our listeners will be familiar with, I think actually Zaki knew when to do like L1, L2, L3, L4 leadership pretty effectively. Yeah. Um, the thing that, I mean, so the thing that I wrote down about him as I was, you know, co- you know contemplating his leadership is that you had mentioned that that, that is unusual for that Pentecostal type leader at that point. Yeah. They seem to be very confrontational, very uh, big headed, very like, yeah. um, you know, argumentative. Yeah. If anybody challenges their authority. And to me, as you, as you're saying, it smells like Jesus. Well, you know, I mean, Paul talks about in, you know, first Corinthians, I mean that the, everybody centers in on the center of that book and like what love is. Right. And that whole book is like somewhat of a rebuke, but maybe more of like a, a strong pastoring message to a church that says, that's talking about spiritual maturity. Right. To me, spiritual maturity, spiritual capital, kind of same thing. This guy, William Seymour, has a lot of spiritual maturity. Therefore, I, it leads me to believe that he actually knew the Holy Spirit and how he functioned. Yeah. In his body, with him, in his church, to the point where he didn't have to be so confrontational. No. You could just lead the way that Paul exactly explains what love is in First Corinthians. Well, and I think really what we see in Jesus is invitation and challenge, right? So Jesus knows when how to be kind of soft-spoken, gentle, unassuming, and he also knows when to lay down the law. And I think generally speaking, leaders in the charismatic holiness movement in this time, I mean, there were a lot of leaders that tried to come in, literally that tried to come in and steal the Azusa Street revival under, from out from underneath him. Coincidentally, most of those people were white. Mm. and um, let me rectify this situation yeah Yeah. and obviously some sort of racial bias there but I I also think that a lot of the leaders in this time were kind of one trick ponies and that's kind of what happens in church leadership is it's easy to kind of become a one trick pony where I'm going to just be big blustery and on the force my personality get people to do what I wanted to do and churches will grow that way I mean Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicagoland grew massively under a leader like that. But what I think, what I think William Seymour had was the maturity to have more tools in his toolbox. Because again, when it, when these other guys would try to come in and steal the ministry out from underneath them, he knew how to put a stop to it. He developed a really healthy oversight team to make sure that didn't happen. I mean, yeah, I was about to say that type of leadership is not only is the Holy Spirit, like the holiness of that situation going to catch fire and spread globally, but that type of leadership would be so coveted and, and yeah. like people want that. They don't want, they would smell the, they would smell the, the devil or whatever, the opposite of what Seymour smelled like, quote yeah. unquote, um, a mile away. They'd be like, you're not the leader here. This, yeah. this doesn't. And, and I think that's what did it. Now, later on, that did happen a little bit. So we can talk about that, but um. Let me just talk a little bit about the outward dynamics and then maybe we can talk about like, why did the revival stop? So, um, so obviously Azusa had this incredible national and global reach. I mean, uh, here's what's crazy. I mean, again, it started in April of 1906 and by December of 1906, there are missionaries from Azusa in Akron. Okay. Like here. Um, so they're taking trains and, all this kind of stuff. They're using streetcar lines. What was interesting about them is they did know how 
to use the resources available of that to them to reach the least the last of the loss and to expand their message. So in LA, that meant using the streetcar system to spread the Azusa mission out across the city in a, in a huge way and, and really all over the Los Angeles region then. They also published a newspaper on a regular basis called The Apostolic Faith where snippets of William Seymour's sermons would be, and they would share testimonies of what God was not only doing at the mission itself, but also around the world through its other leaders. So what's interesting about the charismatic Pentecostal movement, and you see this in the second wave, really, Pentecostalism, charismatic ministries have three waves through the 1900s, and the second and third waves, but all the way through, there's always an impulse in charismatic Pentecostal movements to use the media available to them to spread their message which is why uh, Amy Semple McPherson, who founds the Foursquare Church, also in Southern California, would do these elaborate television specials every service. They would televise it. That's why most TV preachers are Pentecostals trying to seek your money uh, because Pentecostals got there first. So there's always been this sense of using what's in front of us and the tools available to us to get that message out. I also think it's really important to notice that, yes, there was an emphasis on baptism of the Holy Spirit for like your own personal experience, but ultimately they sought that experience. They sought that experience to be empowered for service. They sought that experience to be empowered to expand the gospel. And again, remember context of social holy, the context of the social ills, Remembering the context of social ills, they sought that empowerment to uh, re restore the church to its rightful strength, its intended strength, and to address the social ills going on at the time. And so their dependence on the spirit to be empowered by God led to a lot of lasting fruit as evidenced by, just to note this, if you sing in your church a Bethel church worship song, which we happen to do a fair bit of, you are an inheritor of what God did at the Azusa Street Mission. Mm. If you use social media to broadcast what your church is doing or to reach more people, you are an inheritor of the Pentecostal movement that began at Azusa. If you use a podcast to get your message out, you're an inheritor because we're using the technology available to us to do that. And we're engaging in worship that is expressive, that is emotional. I mean, it's really shaped the face of American worship and global worship for now a hundred years too. So, so yeah. What um, I'm going to push back just maybe a teensy bit. Go for it. Um, you think what they did there at the um, the Azusa Street Mission, as far as what I'll call marketing, yeah, um, or just what well, no, we'll call it evangelism, um, okay, using media to uh, to display what's going on here, essentially. Mm -hmm. You think that Azusa Street revival kind of that that's that's the main influence for all churches. Like, there, like, I guess a, better, a, a simpler question is, there was no other type, I mean, there's other newspapers. Right. So. I would say, I, no, I would. Were using newspapers? Well, I, I guess I don't know the answer to that, but I know it's something that they in particular did. Okay. Um, 
they kind of popularized it at least. Or at least took advantage of it to the extreme. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess that is pretty, um, you know, if that's, if that can be traced back to them, that is very like, um, I don't know, forward thinking, ingenuitive. I mean, Protestants have always had that impulse since Martin Luther started insisting that since the printing press, right? Yeah. Like the Protestant Reformation happening around the time of the printing press, again, is no accident because now it made the Bible readily available to everyone in their own language. So so there's always been a drive to use media within Protestantism, but yeah, using popular media, newspapers at that time, and then television and radio in the second and third waves, and now social media and yeah. music, it, 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 those, that's, that's something that is an impulse from within the Pentecostal movement that began at Azusa Street that's key. And, and I think, and I think, you know, I, I don't think that's their biggest contribution by any means, or it's, but it's a significant one. Another significant contribution from the Azusa Street mission and the Azusa Street revival is this quest for a deeper experience in the spiritual life, is this quest for revival, right? The revivalistic impulse in American Christianity is undeniable. And it's because we've had one every hundred years since the 1700s. And you could even argue that the reformation of the, the 1600s was part of that too. And, and this is why most church services, mega churches are built on a revivalistic model that seeks to have people make a decision for faith within the service. Right. And that decision based culture that Scott McKnight writes about in the King Jesus gospel has its roots in revivalism. I guess the question that I want to ask is with all of this emphasis on, um, you know, church history around this particular subject. Revival. We've got specific historians that study the Azusa Street revival. Right. And just breaking it up and parsing it up into like, like a puzzle. Like, you know, I imagine people trying to put this puzzle together to say, I don't know, either to like predict when the next revival is going to be, or to, I don't know, somehow manifest some revival, you know, should we be careful to, to, with the autopsy of these things um, to try and recreate a revival or how much should we be trying to, you know, draw, like how much should we be trying to create a revival? Yeah. I mean, there's an element where to study American church history is to study revivals period because American Christianity tends to thrive on these high moments that recede and then come back. And I think, to your point, there is a danger to obsessing about revival and seeking revival. That's what I would call revivalism or or revivalists. And there's a danger to that for a couple reasons. One, the biggest, I, I don't know who said this, but the biggest resistance to a new move of God is an old move of God. The biggest resistance to a new move of God is an old move of God. And so when we're so obsessed about these revivals of the past and trying to recreate them, what we might be doing is missing out on what God wants to do in our midst now. Right. And I see that in a lot of the churches that I work with and come alongside that 
there is this obsession with getting back to the 60s when our churches were full or getting back to this time instead of looking forward. And so I think there's a danger to that. And by the way, Charles Finney, who was a major evangelist in the Second Great Awakening, he sought to manufacture revival. I mean, Finney studied revivals and then he wrote a book, uh, Lectures on the Revivals of Religion, he wrote in 1835. He would travel the country and he sought to manufacture revivals. I mean, he thought that there were these things that happened over and over again, we could do those things. And that's, I mean, again, mega churches, churches that place high emphasis on conversion in the moment, I mean, are inheritors of Charles Finney. But again, I think the concern is when we start to try to manufacture revival, what we're actually trying to do is, and I mean, it's worse, we're worshiping revival and only worshiping God to get the revival mm. instead of just worshiping God to have more of God. Yeah. And even further, you know, I, I think we're then also manufacturing emotion and, and, and emotion is good in the spiritual life. God gives us our emotions. They're not, we're not to stoically deny them. But when our, when our faith just is driven by emotion, what happens when the emotion goes away? And that's what happens in revival is revival sweep through and it's this big experience. Well, what happens when the emotion of the experience goes away? Well, either I need to learn how to spiritually kind of engage without the drive of emotion, or I'm just going to chase after the next experience, which is why we have so many American Christians church hopping. Because I go to this church, I get this big emotional thrill, and then after two or three years, it goes away. Nobody's tarrying. Right. And nobody's tarrying and learning that learning that perseverance and steadfastness and patience and faithfulness is a key virtue. And so there is a danger. There is a danger to seeking after or trying to manufacture revival. I think it is not inappropriate, however, to pray for and to expect that God could move on a scale like he has done in Azusa, in the Second Great Awakening, in the First Great Awakening. I mean, we want that. We want a tidal wave of God's glory to invade the earth. We want that. We want people to come to Christ. But I sometimes sense a desire for revival because I don't want to do the hard work of evangelism. I don't want to do the hard work of being a disciple. And my sense is that the revival that God could bring or would want to bring after COVID is really going to not be based on droves of people coming to hear a preacher because they can't do that. Or it's not going to be based on people all tuning into the same Facebook live stream. It's really going to come about as individual people choose to be disciples instead of consumers. Mark Sayers is an Australian pastor who I really like a lot. He's written two books, Disappearing Church and Reappearing Church that speak to renewal and revival. Um, and he would say that there's some things that we can see happen over and over again. One of them being that crisis precedes renewal and revival. And so, you know, the crisis that he writes about in reappearing church is the crisis of like secularism and, and expressive individualism. And now even he himself is saying, okay, well, actually maybe the crisis that is going to precede renewal and revival will be COVID-19. Yeah. Something, yeah, it's just like this whole conversation is like begging the question. Right. Like the timing of this conversation and, you know, and, and many before, but like, 
okay, well, apparently things happen after bad stuff. Well, this is pretty, pretty bad. Right. But I would say too, Zach, I think, so yes, there is a danger. There is a danger to trying to manufacture experience and manufacture emotion and even using revival because it would be easier or wanting revival because I, I hear a lot of baby boomer Christians say, I want revival. So America will be a Christian nation again, or that's not why God would be interested in revival. God would be interested in revival because he wishes that none should perish and that everyone would come to a knowledge of the truth and that because he wants a pure bride. And so if we seek after revival, we don't want to manufacture it, but I think we can have a patient tarrying waiting expectancy for God to move. And that's what we're trying. We're trying to do this. We're part of a global network called 3DM. We're trying to put discipleship and mission back into everyday hands. And the reality is what we're trying to do is position our church and churches around us for a move of God. Whenever God is pleased to do that, we're trying to position ourselves for that. And so that's kind of what I've been thinking about a lot with this is, yeah, there's a danger to like, I'm not looking at the Azusa street revival and saying, okay, how do we make this happen at regen? But I do want to have a, a eyes open to uh, what God could do. But the other reason that we don't want to chase after revival is that revivals end. So revivals end. So the Azusa Street revival ended. The Azusa Street mission did not end. It carried on under William Seymour's leadership until the 1920s, uh, until he died. But it did end. And revivals always end. I think that's partially because we can't handle that much. Like on a personal, in our personal spiritual lives, I was just talking to somebody about this this week. We will have seasons of intense intimacy with God followed by seasons of some distance. And St. John of the Cross calls, calls that consolation and desolation, respectively. And he says the reason that happens is we can't hold our hand to a flame for too long before we have to take it away. And that's how our spirits are with God and our souls are with God. We can't be that near to God for too long without it starting to hurt. We need to have this oscillation to the spiritual life of seasons of closeness with some seasons of appropriate, not sinful, but appropriate distance. And I think that happens in revival too, that it's like a, it's a wave that rushes in on the beach, but waves recede. And again, Mark Sayers would say that the, the significant strength of individualism and secularism in our culture does not mean that God's power is defeated. The longer we wait, the more powerfully the wave will come in. This is our third episode talking about the Azusa Street Revival. We have just one more in which we'll discuss why the Azusa Street Revival ended and the lasting impact of the birth of the global Pentecostal movement. I'm so excited for the conversations that this is going to spur from here on out. So stay tuned. Grace and peace.